Now, we're going to take a look today as we continue this series. We're looking at the issue of addiction today. And when I say that, or when you saw the title, maybe you jumped to this thought already. I know there are people who kind of push back against me preaching on that topic for a couple of different reasons. One is, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, wait, I thought this series was about the big issues, the big divisive issues, the things that, that we hear about on the news, the things that we read about in, in uh, opinion columns, the things that we debate back and forth. I thought we were going to talk about racial tension in our country and immigration and sexuality and, and pro-life issues and, and abortion and things like that. And, and yes, we are going to address those issues in this series as it goes along and I didn't originally intend to, to talk on this during this series. I plan my sermon schedule for the year back in October. I do that every year. I go away for a week and pray over it. And when I planned this series, it, it didn't have a sermon uh, addressing addiction in there. But as the months went on, I came to realize I need to add that. I need to do something on that. And I'll tell you in a little while how I came up with that or how, I, how God confirmed that in my mind. But let me give you some statistics that just confirm why this is an issue that we need to talk about. In America today, more than half of all adults have some family history of alcoholism. After the first service, people came and talked to me, and, and that just bore out the statistic. It was my dad was an alcoholic. My brother, my brother died, basically drank himself to death. I have a friend that, that was killed in an alcohol-related accident. So more than half of all adults in America have a family history of alcoholism. 12 million Americans abused prescription drugs drugs in 2010. That was 2010. We don't know what it is this year. The numbers have gone up. Did you know that today drug abuses, drug overdoses kill more people every year than gun violence and car accidents combined. That's a stunner right there. And the financial cost of addiction to our country is $600 billion, and that's just America. And that doesn't count the number, that doesn't count the millions of Americans that are addicted to things like gambling, pornography, tobacco. The truth is, everybody in this room, everybody in this room is either struggling with some addiction or someone close to you is. I can pretty safely say everybody in this room is touched in some way by the issue of addiction. And my guess, if I had to guess on it, very few of the people sitting in this room are doing anything about it. Now, in this message, I'm not going to touch on every form of addiction. There's all kinds of thing, addictions that plague us, but I'm going, to, I'm going to specifically focus on the one that the Bible speaks on the most often, and that is alcohol. And that brings us to the second objection some of you have, and that is, hey, Jeff, can we talk about the elephant in the room? Baptists have some serious baggage when it comes to the issue of alcohol, and we do. We very much do. I grew up Baptist. I grew up in Baptist churches. If you didn't grow up Baptist and you don't know any, about any of this baggage, this might, this might be something new for you to hear. If you did grow up around Baptists, you might be thinking, I had to show up today, Right? I knew, I knew, I start going to a Baptist church, eventually they're going to get around to this. And I'll tell you, growing up in a Baptist church, growing up in a, a small town in a part of the world where a lot of the people come from German or Czech ancestry, where, where drinking beer is pretty much what you do from the time you're a teenager on. And, and so when we would talk about, my friends and I, as, as teenagers, we would talk about, well, what church do you go to? Because everybody in my hometown went to church. 
I had told them that I was Baptist, and their answer would always be the same every single time. They'd say, oh, you're those people that don't believe in drinking alcohol, right? And that would frustrate me so much. Because as a teenager, it wasn't so much I was worried about being seen as, as odd, although that was a factor, but it's, it's that I thought to myself, shouldn't, we, shouldn't my church be known for something more than what we're against? Shouldn't they say, oh, y'all are those people that are so quick to forgive? You're, you're those people that love others. You're those people who are always doing good things out in the community in the name of God. You're those people that folks turn to when they know they've reached the end of their ropes. But we're not known for that. We're known for being against alcohol. And I thought, man, we need, to, we need to have some, we need to do a better job of saying what we're really about. We need to show the world what Christ is about because that's not how we need to be known. And here's the irony. I'm 47 years old, been in Baptist churches my whole life. I've been preaching for about 25 years. And the first Sermon on alcohol I've ever heard is the one I'm preaching today. That's the irony. That me growing up saying, we need to get off of this, we need to get over this, and now I'm like, no, this is something I need to talk about. And believe me, I tried to talk myself out of doing this message several times. But God kept confirming it, confirming this is something that needs to be addressed. One more thing, one, little dis- one more little disclaimer, one more little note before we get into the Word. What we're talking about today is very weighty, it's very important, it's also very complex. It's not like you can just say what the Bible says about alcohol in one sentence. So, two things about that. Number one, think about this stuff. Discuss it. Debrief afterwards. If you came here with other people, talk about it afterwards. If you have kids who are in the room, definitely as a parent, as a mom or dad, make sure they understand what I'm saying today, what the Bible is saying. Secondly, All right, let's just be honest. We're a family. You can be honest with me. I can be honest with you. I know that it's hard to pay attention to somebody who's standing up there and talking for 30 minutes. I know. And I know that your mind tends to drift. I know because my mind tends to drift. Heck, I listen to the podcast every week so I can critique myself. My mind drifts, okay? But this week, I I, I just want to ask you, stick with me. Stay focused. Because... I'm going to say some things which, if you take them out of context, are going to leave you with a very unbiblical impression. For instance, there are two points I'm going to make today that seem to contradict each other, and one is that you cannot make a responsible biblical argument that it is absolutely a sin to drink alcohol. And my Baptist forebears just rolled over in their graves. But that's that's one thing I'm going to say. And the other thing I'm going to say is America has an alcohol problem a serious alcohol problem, and we can't be the people of God if we don't address that and do something about it. So do you understand how if you only hear one of those two points, you're going to walk out with the completely wrong message? So with all that said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at exactly what the Bible has to say on this subject, and you might be surprised what all the Bible has to say on this. And we're going to ask two questions. Number one, how do I decide whether it's a good idea for me to drink alcohol or not? And secondly, what is my responsibility to others. What is my responsibility regarding this issue and other people in my life? So what does the Bible say about this? Quite a lot, actually. In fact, if you've never read the Bible before and you picked it up and you started reading it today, you you would be surprised how often wine is mentioned. Beer is mentioned a couple of times, but wine is mentioned a lot. And there's a reason for that. In the ancient world, in Israelite culture especially, wine was the drink of celebration. If you had a wedding feast, there was going to be wine there. 
And your, your family would be judged by how good the wine was. If you had a friend who went away or a loved one and they came home after a long time and you wanted to welcome them home, what would you do? You'd kill the fatted calf and you would serve wine. If you greeted a visitor, a person who was new to your town, and you brought them in because hospitality was very important in the ancient world, and you said, hey, come spend the night at my house, you would bring out the best wine you had. It was the, it was the drink of celebration, universally. It was also the drink of sacred observances. Do you know that on the holiest night of the Jewish year, Passover night, every family would gather around their table and they would eat roasted lamb and and unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they would each have four cups of wine. Now, these weren't big jugs of wine. They weren't getting drunk. These were four small cups of wine everyone would drink, and it was part of the ritual. With each cup, they would tell part of the Passover story. Jesus, the night before he died, talks about it. They're doing that last Passover meal, and he says, I'm not going to get to drink the fruit of the vine again until I drink it again in my Father's kingdom. You know what he's saying? He's saying, when we all get to heaven... When all of God's people are finally together again, we're going to have wine together. That's going to be part of the celebration. There will be wine in heaven. I think most of us know Jesus' first miracle is recorded in John chapter 2. It is the miracle in which he changes wine into big red. I'm sorry, he changes water into wine, right? That's the way it goes. He changes water into wine. Now, Old school Baptists will say, yeah, yeah, but back then they watered down their wine. They diluted it so much that it was basically like grape juice. Now, there is an actual Greek term for that theory, and it's pronounced this way. It's pronounced balone. (laughs) I'm sorry to your grandparents. Your good Baptist grandparents who said, oh, Jesus never drank anything intoxicating. Yeah, he actually did. He not only drank it, he made it. He not only made it, the the host of the wedding feast tasted it and said, this is the best wine I've ever had, which makes sense because Psalm 104 verse 14 has this to say. It says, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Question, is the food you eat for lunch, is that a gift from God? Should you be thankful for it? Should you say, thank you, Lord, for creating good meat to eat and good bread and good vegetables and good dessert? Yes, absolutely. Is wine a gift from God? According to Psalm 104, yes. God made wine to bless people and to make them happy. It is a gift from Him. And here's one you've probably never heard in church, 1 Timothy 5.23. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his young friend Timothy. He says, stop drinking only water and use a little wine for your stomach and your frequent illnesses. I have never heard that preached, never once in my life. So the, the, the testimony of Scripture is that God created the process of fermentation so that humans could have uh, uh, something that... that brings happiness, that brings joy, one of his gifts. However, if that's all you hear in this sermon, you have missed it. Because if you read the Bible, what you will also see is that drunkenness is constantly, consistently condemned. 
If you know the Bible, if you've read the Bible, especially the New Testament, you know there are all these lists. There are lists where it says, here's what it looks like when you live the life that is opposed to God's ways. Here's what it looks like when you go your own way and you miss out on God's plan and you experience personal destruction. You commit murder, you lie, you, you have sex with your neighbor's wife, you, you do all these awful destructive things. And in those lists, drunkenness is almost always listed as one of the fruits of a godless life. There are many stories in Scripture of people getting drunk. There is never a single story in the Bible in which Scripture laughs about that, commends that, says, he got drunk and the Lord said, this is good. It is always seen in a negative light. It is always shown to be a danger. Not only that, wine is consistently shown in Scripture to be something you need to be careful of because it can take control of you. In other words, addiction is warned against. Now, Probably the most picturesque warning of what I'm talking about is in Proverbs 23, 31 through 35. And listen, if you've ever been drunk or been around someone who is, this is going to sound very familiar. It says, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights. And your mind will imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so that I can find another drink? And then there's Ephesians 5.18. This is one of my favorites. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Let me tell you something that's going to make that more meaningful for you. The Greek term that Paul uses for be filled is the same word he uses when he says get drunk. So what Paul is literally saying is, instead of getting drunk on wine, get drunk on the Spirit of God. Now, what does he mean by that? What he's saying is, alcohol... And the Holy Spirit of God have this in common. They are both outside agents, which when you allow them into your life, when you allow them to control you, can change who you are. You behave differently. You say things you wouldn't ordinarily say. You're brave enough to do things you wouldn't ordinarily do. The difference is when you're controlled by the Spirit of God, when you're drunk on the Holy Spirit of God, you always, always do things that later on you're very, very thankful you did. The Holy Spirit of God controls you in such a way that you always become the person you were meant to be, a person that blesses others. Nobody ever says, he was full of the Spirit and he ruined my life. No, he was full of the Spirit and he saved my soul. Whereas wine does the exact opposite. When it controls you, you do and say things you later regret, deeply, deeply regret. And I know there are people who would say, okay, but I drink, but I don't get drunk. I, I never get drunk. I know how much, I know my limits, and I'm fine. That doesn't necessarily mean it's still okay. Romans 14.21 says, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine than it is to cause your brother or sister to fall. Now, Paul, there is not saying that it's wrong to drink wine any more than he's saying it's wrong to eat meat. That's part of a, a, a long section. I've taken that verse out of context, but let me tell you the context. A long section in which Paul is saying, there are people who want to ban you from eating wine. There are people who want to are eating meat. There are people who want to ban you from drinking wine. He says, all those things are permissible. Following God isn't about what you eat or drink. However, Paul says, you need to keep in mind your brother or sister around you. And if you're eating meat or you're drinking wine causes them to stumble into sin, either because they're so offended at you it causes a, a, a division in the church or because they're an alcoholic and they see you drinking and that encourages them to fall off the wagon, he says you need to keep your neighbor in mind. It's not just about you. Don't cause your brother to stumble. 
So again, these issues are not easily cut and dry. These take prayer. These take discernment. So the question, since we've seen some of the scriptures about alcohol, the first question, should I drink or should I not? Let me start with the teenagers. Again, I know most of our teenagers are in the gym this morning, but some of them are here, and and you can take the podcast to those who aren't. If you're a teenager, the answer is very clear-cut. You should not. You should not. And let me tell you why. Not because of Scripture, because of biology. Because biology tells you, physiology tells you, that until you get to your mid-20s, your prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that controls impulse, that controls appetite, that, controls, uh, that, that tells you, I shouldn't do this because these will be the consequences. When you're a teenager, before you get to your mid-20s and your prefrontal cortex is fully developed, that is not what it should be. In other words, if you remember when you were a teenager and you did and said stupid things, stone cold sober, you did and said stupid things, I did, I know you did, that's why. You weren't fully mature. Therefore, as a teenager, you're not ready to drink something that's going to lead you in a direction, if you abuse it, that will be destructive. Just walk away. It's not time for that. And I know, I know, I remember being the only teenager at the party who wasn't drinking. I also remember a couple of times being the teenager who was so insecure that I didn't withstand peer pressure and I went ahead and drank anyway. And thank God I found the taste of beer disgusting because I never developed a taste for it and I didn't get into trouble. I just nursed it enough so people wouldn't judge me. So I know how hard it is. I know you don't want to hear this. I am speaking to you in love. I am also saying to you, I know dozens and dozens and dozens of adults who tell me stories of, of horrible decisions they made because they drank when they were teenagers, terrible things that happened. I don't know one single adult who says to me, you know what I regret about my teenage years? I should have drank more. Not one. Not a single one. Not the most reprobate adult I know. And if I'm making eye contact with you now, it's purely coincidence. Not the most reprobate adult I know would say, I should have boosted up more when I was a teenager. What about adults then? Let me just share with you how I make my decision. Because I'm an abstainer. I choose not to drink. And there's basically three reasons. Number one, I know myself. And I know that just by nature, I'm not a person who finds it easy to walk the walk of Christ and to say the right things and to avoid saying the wrong things and to act in a way that doesn't bring disgrace upon the kingdom of God. I know, I know that I have a hard time living in self-control. I don't think adding in something that naturally reduces inhibitions is a good idea for me. I also know because my wife has told me, I don't, I don't remember this, but she's told me several times when I've had procedures and I've been coming off of anesthesia, she's been in the room with me and she tells me stories of the way I am. Get her aside sometimes, pay her money or something, she'll tell you those stories. I mean, apparently I'm very funny, but the stories she tells me tell me, I don't want that guy to ever be seen outside of a post-op room, Ever. So that's reason number one. Second reason, between my wife and I, we can point to some history of addiction in our extended family. Um, there's some evidence there's, that that can be genetic. And so 
I don't want my kids who have that same DNA, I don't want them to see their dad drinking and think, oh, it's a good idea for me. Once they get to be adults, it's their life. They can do what they want. But for now, they're not going to see us with alcohol in our hands. And third, I'm pastor of this church, and I love being pastor of this church, and the perks to being pastor of this church are way better than liabilities. But one of the liabilities is, I just know there are certain things that may be permissible to others that aren't to me because they would not look right. And I don't want to bring division on this church, and I don't want to cause anyone to stumble, and I don't want to do anything to bring disgrace upon this church or the name of Christ. And so it's not worth it to me. The risk-reward is not worth it to me. I don't think that makes me better than anybody else. I'm not better than Jesus and his apostles who drank wine. I don't think I'm better than you if you drink. So just to get this all out on the table, if this week I'm eating in the same restaurant you are and I come to your table to say hi and you've got a glass of wine in front of you, you don't need to hide it under the table, okay? If you invite me over to your house, you don't have to send your wife to dig out all the beer cans from your trash can. I'm not going to come and pronounce judgment on you because if I do, God's going to judge me, okay? How do you make the decision? How do you know whether it's good for you You say, well, well, Jeff, you said it's a gift of God. Yeah, so is sex. Not every adult should partake in that. The Bible's quite clear on that. We'll get to that in a few weeks. How do I know whether this gift is good for me or not? Ask yourself, how do I behave? How does it affect me? And how does my drinking affect the people around me? When I say ask yourself, I mean ask someone who will be honest with you. Someone who knows you, not the guy you drink with, Ask someone who will be honest with you. I'll give you another scripture, 1 Corinthians 6.12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. That term mastered by means enslaved by, in bondage to. Earlier today, I said America has an alcohol problem. America is in bondage to alcohol today. And here's my proof. The American Medical Association says that in the first 10 years of this century, 2000 to 2010, the rate of alcoholism in in America rose by 49%. That's a lot. Today, one in eight American adults is an alcoholic. One in eight. If you want to make that more personal, that's at least one person in every pew. Don't look around. I don't need statistics to tell me America has an alcohol problem because I go to football games. My wife and I are season ticket holders for our alma mater, and in the fall we go to every home game, go to some road games, and every week, every week without fail, we see some people making fools of themselves. Fools is a biblical term. Look it up. It's not a mere junior high insult. I see people who have college degrees, who have responsible jobs, who have families, reputations, who act like fools, and they don't even know they're doing it. And the funny thing, the tragically funny thing is, when a game is at 11 a.m., which happens often to my little team, when the game's at 11 a.m., they complain because that's too early to tailgate. I can't get there and drink before the game. How am I supposed to have fun? You see, why do I say America's in bondage to alcohol? Because we've decided, number one, 
that we can't enjoy ourselves unless we get a good buzz on? I can't enjoy myself sober. How am I supposed to have fun? Secondly, because we don't know what idiots we are when we're drinking. And I'm not saying everyone's this way. At the games, everyone around me is drinking, but most of them are acting fine. But there's enough people there acting like fools to make me think, if I videotaped you on my phone and sent you, a, sent you that video this next week, you wouldn't want to come out of your house for a week. You'd be so embarrassed. But you have no idea. Folks, that's bondage. You keep doing it week after week, day after day, and you think you can't enjoy yourself without it. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you see it. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. You don't realize that that's you that I'm referring to. And no one's had the courage yet to tell you. Or maybe they've tried and you didn't listen. I'm asking you. I'm begging you. Because I love you. I'm asking you to consider these things, to pray about it, to ask someone who you know would be honest with you. What am I like when I drink, if I drink? Would I be a better person if I cut back, if I stopped it entirely? Would you find me easier to live with? How do I affect you? In your bulletin, there's a list of local resources. One I failed to mention is Larry Renetsky, who who uh, is our counselor who, who works here at our church. He can also help you. At the end of our service, we're going to ask all of our ministers to stand up front so you can come and pray with one of us. If you're someone who struggles with addiction or you, you know someone who does and you want to pray for them, you want to pray for yourself to have courage to confront them, we want to help you. We want this to be a day when some people start the road toward freedom. Don't walk out without doing that, without taking that step. Now, for those of you who would say, okay, I agree with everything you've said so far. I don't have a problem with any kind of addiction, not to, not to alcohol, not to porn, not to gambling, not to tobacco, not to anything. I'm addiction-free. So what is my responsibility to others? That's the second question today. Two things. Number one, don't be judgmental. Don't be a Pharisee. You know what the Pharisees did in the New Testament? They created these artificial rules. They said, okay, this is what it is to be a good person. You go to the Sabbath this often. You, you, here, here's, our, here's our criteria for what considers uh, uh, obeying the Sabbath. Here's what it means to be a godly man. They created these artificial boundary markers that were outside the Word of God. Growing up, in a Baptist church, even one that never talked about alcohol, it was pretty much the unspoken assumption among us that good people didn't drink and bad people did. That was a boundary marker for us. And if you grew up Baptist, you think back to your grandparents or your great-grandparents. So 60, 70 years ago, if you went into those churches 60 and 70 years ago, you would have, you would have found 100% people who would say, yeah, alcohol is evil. I won't do it. Some of them did behind closed doors, but for the most part, publicly, they were against it. Think about it, though. In this part of the world, most of those same people were very for racial segregation, which I think we can all agree today was an absolute evil, a system that was an abomination in the eyes of a holy and gracious God. And yet they considered themselves spiritually superior because they didn't drink alcohol, something that God does not condemn. All I'm saying is, if you choose, like me, if you choose not to drink, It doesn't make you a better person than people who do. And I say that not just so we'll get all, not just to keep us from getting all puffed up with pride, but also because this church and any church 
that preaches the gospel of Christ needs to be a safe place and needs to be known as a safe place in our community where someone can say, I'm struggling with an addiction. I can't stop drinking. I can't stop taking these medications. I can't stop looking at these images. I can't stop doing what's destroying me. I know I can go to First Baptist Church and stand up in front of the whole church and and confess what I've done or, or go into my life group and confess what I'm struggling with and no one will judge me. Everyone will rally around me and everybody will put lay hands on me and pray for me and and lift me up. That needs to be the story here. And it can't be if we feel superior, if we're judgmental. So some of us in this room, some of us need to confess to God and just say, Lord, I feel a self-righteous attitude toward people who drink. Please change me and make me the kind of person who can lead them to freedom. Second thing, be courageous enough to confront. There are a lot of people in this room, maybe most of the people in this room, maybe all of the people in this room who know someone who's struggling in some addictive behavior. And you have to be the one who's courageous enough to confront them. You have to be the one who says, you need help. I love you. I'm going to support you. I'm not condemning you, but you've got to get help. I told you at the beginning, I I tried to talk myself out of doing this sermon, and then God confirmed that this was something I need to do. Let me tell you how that happened. Every Friday morning, my wife and I have breakfast together. That's our standing date. We go out, um, and and I've found some really good breakfast places in Conroe. I need to write a book. It's really good. Um, So one Friday, we were doing that. We were eating at one of our favorite places, and, you know, like most Fridays, I had finished my pancake, and I'm just watching her eat hers and hoping she's full so I can finish hers because, you know, that's, that's every Friday. And I'm telling her about this sermon series that's coming up, and I'm listing the topics I'm going to preach on. And I said, yeah, and and I feel like I need to do one about addiction and specifically about alcohol. And I talked to her about how I had real misgivings about doing that, and I didn't know uh, if it was really necessary and, you know, how stereotypical it is for a Baptist preacher to talk about alcohol. And I was really praying about it. I didn't realize as I'm saying all of this that our waitress is standing nearby, and she's overhearing every word I'm saying. And our waitress knows us. I mean, we go there a lot. She knows that I'm a pastor. And she walked up and she interrupted me and she said, let me just say, you need to preach on that. And then she went on to tell us about her dad, her dad who's an alcoholic. She talked about how her dad has lost most of his friends because of his drinking and because of how he acts when he drinks, how he said horrible, horrible things to her, his daughter, and to her little three-year-old daughter. This man's granddaughter said horrible, horrible things to this precious child when he was drinking. And and when she tells him, when he sobers up what he's done, he refuses to believe it. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but when we're in the wrong, the last person we want to listen to about it is our loved ones, our spouse, our children, or sometimes the last people we'll listen to. And she said, I wish someone would talk to my dad because he won't listen to me. And some of you are in that position where you say, there's someone I know who's struggling. There's someone I know, I know they're going down the wrong road. And I just don't feel like I have, uh, it's not my right to get involved, live and let live. I mean, I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to be nosy. I don't want to force my morality on someone. That person's spouse, that person's child, that person's parent might be praying for you today to have the courage 
to go up and say an important word of confrontation. That might be just what it takes to lead that person, that person to get help. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And some of you don't because you haven't had your eyes opened yet. You have, you've been stuck gazing at your own navel and you don't notice what's going on in your, in your neighbor's life. But we need to open our eyes and we need to say, Lord, show me the people who need the loving confrontation of God. And give me the words. Give me the wisdom. Give me the opportunity. See, the reason I can say we shouldn't be judgmental is because all of us are in bondage. By nature, because all sin is bondage. It doesn't matter if you've never touched a drop of alcohol, much less illicit drugs. It doesn't matter if you've never looked at a dirty website. It doesn't matter if you're not addicted to any of that stuff. By nature, we are addicted to sin of all kinds, and it enslaves us. And Jesus looked down upon us, and he didn't just say, Well, they're going to go to hell if I don't do something. He said, They're in bondage. I need to rescue them. And the cost of our redemption of our freedom from slavery was the life of the Son of God, and He paid it without question. He bought our freedom. If you were enslaved and someone bought your freedom, would you go on living in slavery? Jesus has paid for your freedom. He has paid the price. There are so many who still need to hear that message. They need to hear that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed.